Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Coming up on episode number 15 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.45, I'm speaking with hilarious actor Ed Bagley Jr. about an outstanding dark comedy thriller he's a part of called Don't Tell Larry that's premiering at the Austin Film Festival this weekend. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with stand-up comedian Alonzo Bowden ahead of his headlining shows at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this Friday and Saturday. And a mere seconds, Steve Sarkeesian names his starter at QB this Saturday. And I break down the World Series matchup between the Rangers and D-backs with that series getting going tomorrow night. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can follow me on Twitter at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Earlier in a media availability with Austin Media and others on Zoom, Steve Sarkeesian confirmed what many of us thought to be the case this week as we learned that Quinn Ewers would be week to week with that AC joint injury in his throwing shoulder. But let's be honest, this is one that's going to keep him out for at least a little while, if not a lot of while that Malik Murphy would be the next man up for Texas at quarterback. Steve Sarkeesian insisted after the game on Saturday and in his presser on Monday that he was going to give Malik Murphy and Arch Manning first-team reps in practice this week. And I'm guessing that's happened to a degree, but I think deep down Sark, even without realizing it, although he probably did realize it, gave Malik Murphy more first-team reps because... You are operating on a meritocracy, but sometimes when things are relatively even, including a complete lack of game experience, when the snaps matter a whole lot more than in mop-up duty at the ends of games, that Malik Murphy, with a little bit of mop-up duty and some legitimate game action last week, gets the nod over Arch Manning, who has not been on the field for a game yet in his young career. And Steve Sarkeesian admitted to the media earlier today that Malik Murphy would be the guy under center for Texas this Saturday. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that, one, Malik Murphy has put in the work and has earned his teammates' respect. You keep hearing about just how much guys look up to Malik Murphy, that he is this huge presence, not only in terms of his physical stature, but also a personality and also a guy who uh, is friendly with a lot of people in that locker room that it's his turn to show what he has. And while he will get opportunities to throw the football, this does not need to be a situation like what we saw last week with Quinn Ewers, where Quinn, granted, he goes 16 of 17 in the first half against Houston. It was still throwing the ball 17 times in the first half in a game that I guess was pretty close going into the locker room at halftime. But... A lot of those attempts and completions were when Texas was building up a 21 to nothing lead. You don't need to see Malik Murphy attempting more than 17 passes probably in this entire game unless something has gone terribly wrong. He will get some opportunities. Sark does a great job of scripting that opening set of plays on offense. So he'll ask him to make some easy throws early, I'm guessing. But you will see a heavier dose of this Texas rushing attack. And why should you not? You see, many years ago, the legendary Mike Leach 
talked about what balance means for an offense. Some people hear the word balance and they think about what that means philosophically. And balance suggests when you're on a scale of something in the 50 to 50, uh, 50-50 range. But on the football field, balance is whatever is necessitated for your offense to be successful. So Mike Leach threw a whole lot more than he ran. Some teams run a lot more than they throw. Very rarely is it 50% run, 50% pass. I don't know what the play call percentage has been for Steve Sarkeesian up to this point, but we need to bump the rushing numbers up just a little bit. Nothing against Malik Murphy, but you do want to ease him into this experience if you can. Well, also leaning on what is a certain strength of this team right now, and that is Jonathan Brooks and just how good he is, and C.J. Baxter, the true freshman who last week looked like he was as healthy as he's been since the first quarter of the first game of the season. Let these guys eat. Let Malik Murphy early on operate off of play action. Give him easy throws. If he makes the easy throws, just add to the level of difficulty gradually. And don't overthink this. There's no need to overthink this. For the reasons I just mentioned, and also BYU, not great offensively, not great defensively. You see a 5-2 and two record. That's a little bit misleading. Their best win right now over a 2-6 and six Arkansas team that just fired their offensive coordinator. Game was in Fayetteville. It looked impressive on the screen at the time. I remember seeing that score because Arkansas got up in that game, and I think they eventually let it slip away to the Cougars. But BYU has really not been good in conference play. Now, granted, they beat Texas Tech last weekend with Texas Tech playing a third-string quarterback, but pretty much everybody's beaten Texas Tech at this point, or at least those who have played the Red Raiders so far. They got worked by Kansas, losing by double digits. And they got absolutely crushed by a TCU team that has been really bad offensively this year. The Horned Frogs had an offensive explosion against BYU. Now, granted, they did throw the football. And they let a backup quarterback throw the football at that. And he ends up with more than 400 yards passing. So, maybe we see Malik with a little bit heavier of a game plan than throwing it 15 to 20 times at most. And I do also expect to see Arch Manning at some point in this game too. And not necessarily while the game is in hand. I think they want to get him out there when things matter a little bit more just to get those initial butterflies out. Because Arch Manning at this point is a potential snap away. I hate to think about this, but you always have to think about the best and worst case scenarios. Malik goes down to an injury. Arch Manning is the guy. They're not going to Charles Wright. They're going to Arch Manning. So to maybe give him the third or fourth series of this game and keep a rotation like that throughout is not completely off the table. The Texas Rangers and Arizona Diamondbacks start the 2023 World Series tomorrow night in Arlington. Programming reminder... You can hear every World Series game right here on 1027 ESPN. They're all just after 7 o'clock first pitches and 6 o'clock pregames. Games 1 and 2 are Friday and Saturday. Games 3, 4, and 5, if 5 are necessary, are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And if there is a game 6 and 7, that will be the following Friday and Saturday. Now, what does that mean for this show with a 6 o'clock pregame? Well, it means I'm not going to be on tomorrow. That's okay, though, because I'm going to be gearing up 
for that Rangers game. And it also means no shows next Monday, Tuesday, and possibly Wednesday. And then we'll see about Friday, Saturday. I feel strangely confident about this matchup right now, and I hate that because this is a Texas Rangers team that has been on a roller coaster ride of a second half of the season. This happened to a lesser degree in the playoffs, but obviously the ALCS provided quite a bit of drama too. But you look at these two teams statistically, Arizona has Texas in two spots. Bullpen, which isn't that big of a shock, but I would also argue that the pared-down Texas bullpen is not the laughing stock that the entirety of the bullpen was throughout the year. And the Arizona Diamondbacks are also better at stealing bases. They stole nearly one per game, which was, I believe, either first or second in the majors this year. So this D-backs team plays as close to a brand of small ball as you'll see in Major League Baseball this year. But Texas had the advantage, or is at least on par with Arizona everywhere else. Two really good starters just like Arizona. I would argue with Max Scherzer in there, and we're seeing him improve incrementally over his uh, first two starts and suffering that shoulder injury against the Astros, looking a little bit better and better. Had more control over that slider in his second game. I think he gives the Rangers an edge in that game three starter. But then Texas, they are better at the plate right now. These two teams are also even fielding-wise, by the way. Both tied for the lead in fielding percentage in the majors this year. So I'll get my prediction about this series at the end of today's show. Coming up, though, a couple of conversations with very funny people, starting with stand-up comedian Alonzo Bowden, who is headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Alonzo Bowden is a longtime stand-up comedian who is headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this Friday and Saturday night. For info and tickets for the Comedy Mothership, go to ComedyMothership.com. For more info and to check out all of Alonzo's stuff, you can go to AlonzoBowden.com. Alonzo is nice enough to join me now for a couple of segments. Alonzo, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I am good, Trey. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and uh, from us talking a little bit before hitting record, I just learned that this weekend is not going to be your first time performing at the Comedy Mothership. You are headlining there this weekend, but you did a guest spot back in April. What were your initial impressions of this club that is getting a lot of love from both audience members and comedians alike? All right. As a comedian, I will tell you the single best thing about the Comedy Mothership. When you're in the green room, there's only one remote control for the television. Now, trust me on this. I've been to clubs all of, there's always at least three remote controls and only one person who knows how to use them. And that guy's never in the sound booth when the game is on. So the mere <laughs> fact that they made the mothership have one remote control, you're like, this is the best club in the country. This is the A club. <laughs> so because you're headlining this weekend, if you want it on the, uh, the Clippers preseason game, do they have to abide by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The headliner controls the TV. No, it's a great room. It's very uh, friendly. The people are right on top of you. So the energy's good. The focus is on the stage, like all the things that make a comedy club great. The mothership has. So so it's a great room. And just doing the guest spot. 
I had a blast. Plus, you know, we're we're all like veteran comics, man. You know, when you're there's nothing better than hanging out with a bunch of old friends who are veterans. So when I did my guest spot that night, Joe was there, Burr was there, Harlan Williams was there. You know, it's that was like I don't know, I don't know, like old home week or something. And the club has a good vibe. When a club has a good vibe, you get a better show. My goodness, what a uh, what a list right there of guys performing comedy that night. And that was in the first month of the club being open, too. And I don't know if you had a chance to work both the uh, the bigger and smaller rooms, but both rooms have their own feel also, on top of obviously being treated properly acoustically to where the laughs are reverberating but not echoing too much. And, uh, the, you know, the crowd is jammed in there like they should be at a good comedy club. Another detail that uh, people have talked about that I think is a good quality at a solid comedy club is that there's not any food being served up either. So while people do get to drink, they're not distracted by food and you're not having to deal with the distraction of, uh, of you know, fried chicken fingers or whatever else is going on in the kitchen uh, being cooked up and served while you're trying to tell jokes, too. Well, this club has the unusual distinction of being built for comedy. Yeah. Most comedy clubs, and, and the club owners will tell you, and I get it, they're like, listen, we're in the food and beverage business and we do comedy, but you, you know, their bread and butter is, is the food and drinks. So I, I remember, listen, I remember early on when I started and this comic, a veteran at the time told me, he said, listen, man, if they could figure out how to sell the food and drinks without us, we wouldn't be here. So... <laughs> So uh, you've also performed in Austin over the years, too, at the old Cap City. And then uh, you're such an old school guy that you go back to the Velveeta Room, which is actually still around, still doing uh, comedy most nights out of the week. What are your impressions of getting to perform in Austin all these years? And is it surprising at all that it has turned into this stand-up mecca seemingly out of nowhere? Well, Austin's a great city, right? It's always been the the non-Texas city in the center of Texas. Which is, which is very cool, uh, very open-minded crowds and all that stuff. And trust me, I have worked, you know, Midland, Odessa, Beaumont. Mm. You know, I've been all over Texas. I've done Roadhouse. I know Texas. So Austin, yeah, a bit different than the rest of Texas. But the Velve, the Velveeta Room, that room is awesome. Yeah. That is old school comedy. That That's, you know, there's nothing better than like a, I don't know, 80 seat room with a hundred people in it and, and a small stage that you're sweating on. That's when there's something about the creativity of that kind of room. It, it almost brings a jazz feel to it. Like I work with a lot of jazz musicians and yeah. do stuff in that world. And the Velve has that kind of feeling, just pure creativity. So I loved it. I, I like doing little rooms like that for fun. You know, Cap City was great. I mean, I worked Cap City a long time ago. Uh, I don't know early 2000s and I know it's changed since then I haven't been to it but yeah I'm not surprised Austin developed a scene I mean it had the music scene I will say the mothership is probably the mothership and the moon tower comedy festival those are the two things that made Austin a spot for comedy you know because they they brought comics in like with moon tower you bring in comics from all over the country all over the world and you just hang out and you're bouncing around venue to venue to theaters and the little clubs and, and this and that. So yeah, it makes it, it makes a lot of fun. I'm not surprised at all. Another thing about Austin, I have a friend who moved to Austin, you know, before everyone moved to Austin, he moved there. I want to say in the late nineties 
And he said, yeah, anywhere in the country is a three hour or less flight, you know, because comics, we travel all the time. He's like, you're in the middle of the country. So anywhere you go, you don't have a long flight, which made a lot of sense. So Austin makes a lot of sense for, for comics and for comedy. And for me, voodoo donuts. You know, listen, you got voodoo donuts. They're open all night. I'm there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get fat while I'm in Austin. I'm sorry. That's, That's what literally I a block away from the mothership at this point, too. You think I didn't know that, Trey? Do you think I didn't know that? Who was the friend that moved to Austin in the late 1990s? He told you about the three-hour flights. His name was Scott Kennedy. Hmm. Tragically, he died far too young. He was only um, in his late 40s when he passed away. He started booking when the the Iraq war started. He started booking comics to go to Iraq. I went with him twice. He took over, I think, I want to say somewhere between 45 and 50 shows to Iraq. And he would take us to like the big USO shows in Iraq. You know, when Leno went, Drew Carey or or people like that, they go to the big main base and they do a show for 10,000 people. Scott was taking us to what they call FOBs, forward operating bases. And sometimes you'd go there and there's only 45 people there, right? And and 30 of them are at the show in the mess hall while the other 15 are on patrol and stuff like that. He was a he was a fantastic guy. It was a fantastic thing that he did. And again, tragically, he died uh, far too young, but he was a good dude. And yeah, he moved to Austin long ago. Was that the most unique? performing circumstance that you've ever done stand-up for oh no i've done stand-up anywhere it should be done in a hell of a lot of places it shouldn't be done but doing military shows it's it's super fun because there's a mutual appreciation right because they appreciate the show you know being in the military most people in the military will tell you they call it groundhog day it's the same thing over and over and iraq was weird because there's a war going on, but there's also just being there a lot of rules, like no alcohol and everything is is kind of this dusty brown color and it's hot. It is, you know, 110, 115. I mean, it's a it's a tough just the life that they deal beyond the, the danger of war and IEDs and all of that. Just the day to day. The comedy shows come in, we break that up for them. We give them something else. We make fun of the officers that they're not allowed to make fun of. (laughs) They all love it. The officers are very cool about that. And then we get to see what they do. Like, you know, when we're home and people say, you know, um, I appreciate the troops, support the troops. It's like, really? Really? Do you really support the troops? Because we asked for a five dollar tax increase and you said no. You know, it, but when you get to go there and really show them, hey, thank you all for what you're doing. You, you know, it's it's a weird situation, uh, impossible to describe. We appreciate your service. We appreciate you being over there. And as a bonus on occasion, and I'm not going to go into detail, they let you play with their toys. And I'm not going to say what I got to play with. But it was fun, although the Navy never let me blow up a fishing boat. I always wanted to say, hey, can we just blow up a fishing boat and say it was an accident? And they wouldn't let me do that. It's just the <laughs> Somali pirates out there. I mean, it's not like anybody's going to miss them anyhow, right? Uh, you would think, but no, apparently I'm not allowed to fire a ship's gun. <laughs> that's that's a shame, or maybe not so much. So uh, if performing in front of the military is one of those worthwhile moments, you mentioned that there are plenty of places that have no business hosting stand-up. What is one of those places? 
Oh, well, I'll, I'll give you a Texas one. I did a roadhouse bar gig in Beaumont. This is early in my career. So this is in the mid nineties. And there's this guy heckling me and I'm just, you know, I just leaned into him, right? Just wore the guy out. And after the show, they're like, it's about time someone shut him up just because he runs the clan down here. I'm like, really? Really? Nobody thought to tell me that before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You run into crazy local things like that 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 are funny and weird and, and you know, stuff like that. I was telling Joe, I was... um. I'm trying to remember this place. It was, was it St. John's Island? It's a little island off of Newfoundland in Canada. Like it's it's like the easternmost tip of Canada, you know, nowhere, just little island. You got to fly like a 12 seat puddle jumper to get there, blah, blah, blah. And I go into this bar and there's a Joe Rogan experience sticker on the bar. I'm like, Joe, you are everywhere. You are literally everywhere. So stuff like that, it, it's fun. I mean, I, I listen, I still love stand-up. I love the creativity of it. So I tell everyone they pay me to travel and I tell jokes for free. I've, I've worked any and everywhere in the world. They speak English and some places they don't. I did a show in Pakistan and right before the show, I had Pakistan coming out of both ends, Trey both ends mm. but as a comic you hold it in for one hour and then you get off stage and you lose a couple of pounds that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> say no more he is stand-up comedian alonzo Bowden, headlining at joe rogan's comedy mothership this weekend check out more on alonzo and all of his stand-up specials at alonzoboden.com coming up one more segment with alonzo on the other side sports day plus with trey elling Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back for one more segment with Alonzo Bowden. He is a longtime stand-up comedian who is headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. Those shows are sold out, so don't waste your time trying to get tickets for the Friday and Saturday night shows. But do still check out the Mothership through ComedyMothership.com. And you can get all of Alonzo's stuff at AlonzoBowden.com. Alonzo, you were just talking about performing stand-up overseas, and comedy is the great unifier, but a joke that works here in the U.S. doesn't necessarily work outside of the States. Is there a most challenging place that you perform stand-up where you really had to think about the joke or the types of jokes that you were going to tell in order to get the crowd to do what you wanted them to, which is, of course, laugh? Well, here's what it, it is. Now... Our biggest export is our culture. So when you do American jokes, most of the world does know what you're talking about. Hmm. But some places you have to learn the slang, right? For instance, in Australia, when you say panties, to that, that's what we would call like bloomers. Like that would be what your grandmother wears, Yeah. right? So if you got a panties joke and you do it, they're looking at you like, what are you, a sicko? <laughs> you know, so you you learn things like that. Um, we did some shows in Saudi Arabia for the Saudis. That was kind of unique because places like that, they do have specific rules about what not to make fun of. Like you can't make fun of the government and you can't make fun of the religion, you know, because they're very 
strict about it. So, you know, you, you just listen, you have to remember this isn't the United States. So you, you watch your step, you know, but it's not it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult to not do, you know, um, and and it's a comic. It's challenges, man. Even listen, even working here. Right. You get a corporate gig somewhere and they tell you you got to be G rated clean and don't do any politics because we don't want to get the employees, you know, into their own political thing and stuff. So you you work around it. And, and it's really that's part of being a comic, that creativity. You can either be mad about it or take it as a challenge to make it fun and say, hey, how am I going to make this set work? What am I going to do? And then the other thing that that I love doing and it's really universal is crowd work. Yeah. If you talk to the people about what they do and where they're from, and then you start laughing at the differences in culture between places, you know, um, I remember going to Greece and this had to be 98, 99. All the kids thought I was a pro ball player because of my size. They all, they were running up. They wanted me to pick them up. They wanted to take pictures. They couldn't understand. And so after a while, I started using the same line I use on women in LA, which is that I played for the 89 Clippers. And that works, Trey, because (laughs) no one knows who played for the 89 Clippers. It is my line. And don't mess this up for me, man. This is, yeah, I was there. Guys on the 89 Clippers aren't sure I wasn't on the 89 Clippers because no one would admit that publicly. It's like Danny Manning and a bunch of scrubs, right? Exactly. Exactly. I was 13th man on a 12-man squad. (laughs) And Donald Sterling was still a giant a-hole back then, too. Yes, he was. So you are a big Clippers fan. The uh, NBA season is uh, close to tipping off. Uh, what are your expectations for LA's other team this year? Kawhi's back healthy, supposedly. Uh, Paul George is obvious, obviously is still part of things, too. I mean, do you have hopes that this team can actually make a push for a championship this year? Unfortunately, I think we're a middle-of-the-pack team. Yeah. Um, Denver is still going to be just super hard to match, super hard to beat. You know, Kawhi and PG, listen, there's a thing with the Clippers. When you come to the Clippers, at some point, your knee just explodes for no reason. It just, one day you're just like, hey, I was fine yesterday. My knee exploded. Um, It's going to be tough. They're they're old vets, right, to play the whole season. But the other, the problem is their contracts are so big, they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay. Now, I'm trying to, I'm hoping Harden doesn't come to the Clippers. There's all this talk. Harden's cancer, wherever he goes. James, he's a great player individually, but that's just it, individually. So, yeah, it it looks like middle of the pack. Who knows? It's a long season. You know, when you're a Clipper fan, hope springs eternal. And at the very least, for the last 10 years, we've been enjoying pounding the Lakers. It's like, yeah, there are no rings, but every time you beat the Lakers, it just feels good. So uh, looking forward to next season when the new arena opens, because one of the problems the Clippers have, there's and Chris Paul complained about this all the time, and it is true, there's no home court advantage. Mm-hmm. There's always so many fans from the other team, especially if they're playing, you know, the Lakers or Golden State or Phoenix. Or so, so many people come out, Chicago and New York, there are so many people from Chicago and New York living in LA that they have no home court advantage. So the new place 
Steve Ballmer, the owner, setting it up where there's a certain section where it's all going to be Clipper fans. So that'll help. And, you know, I grew up in New York. Listen, I grew up a Nick fan and I was a Nick and Clipper fan. And my friends made me, you know, they said, look, you got to pick one or the other. So I've been sticking with the Clippers ever since. Uh, I love the team. We had a great shot. If if Blake Griffin had heart, Lob City might have won. Blake had a habit of disappearing in the fourth quarter or under pressure. But we had a good run there. It's always going to be fun. And listen, Trey, the tickets are still cheaper than the Lakers. So I'll be there. Hey, Did I mention he, I played for him back in 89? Yeah, he played for him back in 89. And by the way, Danny Manning is another testament to guys joining the Clippers and their knees just blowing up too, right? Oh, it happens over and over. Unfortunately, Sean Livingston's leg bent backwards. It was mm-hmm. it was ridiculous. It, it's kind of a weird jinx the team has. So, But, you know, um, Kmart's, uh, Kmart's son being on the team, that, that athleticism is going to be great. They'll be a good team. It, you know what you learn? Um, I think NBA fans learn this watching. It's hard to win a championship, right? People think it's easy and they're a repeat team. But then when you really get into it and watch it, it takes a lot to win a championship, you know. So I think this year, uh, Milwaukee, you know, with Dame and Giannis, if they have a rhythm, that that's going to be a tough team to beat. Uh, Jimmy Butler, who knew? Who knew? that Jimmy could carry a team right to the finals by himself. That We knew he was good. We didn't know he was that good. So it'll be fun watching it this season and seeing how we do. Yes, it will. All right, uh, Alonzo, before I let you go, you are a, a big car guy. So I wanted to ask you this question because we're starting to see muscle cars going fully electric. But as they go fully electric, they're also still trying to maintain the old school qualities of part of what makes these cars so cool. For instance, uh, certain muscle cars that are electric now, I forget if it's the Corvette or another one, are digitizing the uh, the rumble of the engine, even though the car is no longer making an annoy- making noises because it's electric. What do you think about that? Well, you know who was, I think BMW was the first to do that, and they amplified the sound of the engine through the car speakers in the car. Um And unfortunately, Trey, I know too much about cars. I know how they work. So electric motors to all your fans and listeners. The reason the cars are so quick is an electric motor is at full power instantly. It doesn't have to accelerate like a gasoline engine. That's why they're so quick. And you know how they feel like. It's not my thing. Listen, I get it. People love them. Have fun. I'm not into electric cars. I still like gas. Um. I like cheap gas more than expensive gas, but I still like gas. I like the feel of a car. I have my dog. He's a he's a great Dane. He's a I love my dog. He has good taste because he barks at electric cars. He just doesn't like them. Whenever they go by, he's like, "What the hell is that?" You know. I'm like, "You have good taste." It's not going to be. I've been to um, a Formula E, which is Formula One racing with electric cars. Huh. The the cars are. It's the weirdest thing when the only sound you hear are the tires. You hear the tires on the pavement. That's the only sound. So it's kind of odd. But at the same time, I don't need fake engine noises. You know, I'm not, that's not going to do it for me. Um, This guy told me once, he said, you know, the reason he said, the reason you don't like electric cars is they're not really cars, they're appliances. 
And that's kind of it. It's an appliance to get from point A to point B. And again, I get it, all the technology, this and that. I don't like self-driving technology because I ride motorcycles and, you know, I don't need people completely not paying attention when their car runs me down. But it's a change. If you have an electric car with fake sound like an engine, you probably don't want to pull up a bunch of, up near a bunch of muscle car guys. Well, it's just like a- saying... You may not. <laughs> well, it's like a vegan insisting on still eating some form of bacon, except it's vegan bacon. Like, just find something completely different to eat. Otherwise, join us meat eaters and enjoy the deliciousness of bacon. And by the way, as far as the self-driving cars go, Alonzo, I I guess this was probably prevalent back in April, but the self-driving cars are all over downtown now. And it's a complete disaster, too. I don't know if you've seen the stories coming out of San Francisco where these cars don't know how to handle certain situations. Like, I've gotten into, well, alter- I, I've gotten into altercations. I am convinced self-driving technology will never work. Because no matter how smart the engineer is who designs the car, you cannot match human stupidity. It's impossible. <laughs> there's no algorithm to match. So there's always somebody who does something that the self-driving car is not equipped for it. You know what I mean? Just just whether they make a crazy turn, walking, there's something that your self-driving vehicle cannot adapt to. He is Alonzo Bowden. Check him out this weekend at the Comedy Mothership if you can. There's a good chance all four shows will sell out by the time we get to Friday. But go to ComedyMothership.com to try and snag those tickets. Also, uh, make sure to go to his website as well. That would be AlonzoLive.com. Alonzo, thank you so much for the time today, man. Safe travels to and from Austin. I hope we can do this this again at some point. Thank you, man. One final segment coming up. That includes a conversation with the hilarious actor Ed Bagley Jr. about a new film he's a part of that is premiering at the Austin Film Festival this weekend. Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Don't Tell Larry is a dark comedy thriller that is having its world premiere at the Austin Film Festival on Friday, October 27th. The movie is about a woman named Susan who tells a white lie to her truth-obsessed co-worker Larry to secure a promotion from her retiring boss. But she finds herself in over her head when tragedy strikes and all signs point to Larry as responsible. Now fearing for her life, Susan recruits her co-worker Patrick to help get Larry out of their lives. However, everything Susan does backfires, leading to a tense work week that culminates in an outrageous off-site meeting in the forest. The movie was written, directed, and produced by Greg Porper and John Skimke. And stars Patty Guggenheim, Kyle Kennedy, Kenneth Mosley, and my next guest, Ed Bagley Jr., who also executive produced Don't Tell Larry. Ed, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Very good to talk to you, Trey. It's great to talk to you as well. And uh, I got to tell you, you never know what to expect when you are uh, are watching a film that is a uh, part of a great film festival like the Austin Film Festival. And I have a, uh, a pretty... Uh, a pretty high threshold for when something is called a dark comedy. If I'm uh, actually going to be laughing at the uh, the twisted nature of the humor, but don't tell Larry. 
Uh, it exceeds any lofty expectation you may have for this film. Uh, this is a hilarious movie. It's a very well-written movie. It's a very well-acted movie as well. Uh, what initially got you into this script? I knew I was in for something good because it came through the threshold, you know. Uh, my agent passed it on to me, and I read a good many scripts. That this one was so wonderfully dark, so funny, that I talked to the guys on the phone, Greg and John, and right away, you know, I fell in love with these guys. They're so quick and funny. And on the set, it just got better working with Kyle and Patty, these wonderfully talented people, and Kenneth and Tina. And Dot Moore is just a treasure. Dot Moore Jones is just fantastic. So a great cast, a great time. All of them fine improv people. And I came up with maybe one or two minor improv lines, not much at all. I can't even remember if they used any of that. But the alt lines that Greg and John threw at me were difficult to do. They were so damn funny. I had a hard time <laughs> keeping it together. Really great stuff. And then Patty and Kyle did it to me, too. They threw in some stuff that I didn't see coming at all. So I had to toughen up and try to to get through it. It was great. For for somebody who has been in a lot of funny stuff over the years, it's got to be refreshing for you uh, as someone who is as funny as he is to see uh, the younger generations coming up and still doing incredible stuff, still crushing it with the comedy, too. It just goes to show that we'll, we'll never have a lack of ideas or a lack of performers who understand how to make audiences laugh. I used to be pretty good at improv. I don't know how successful I'd be at doing a doing a movie like Best in Show at this point in my life. I need a good script and some lines that I can learn. Uh, but uh, this was fantastic. It was all scripted for me and a few alt lines that I somehow got through. Uh, and uh, the, the movie is wonderful. I was very, very pleased with it. Every bit as dark as I'd hoped for and every bit as funny. Why do you play successful, but at the same time aloof character so well, Ed? I don't know. I don't think of myself as aloof. I try to think of myself as a man of the people riding the bike and the bus, you know. But uh, I guess uh, I'm cast in, in that because of the way I look. I certainly look like a, an Enron executive, so I guess it's like because of the way I look. Better than being the aging surfer after St. Elsewhere, shows like that that I did when I was quite young. I guess uh, it's a good gig playing the, the corporate boardroom nightmare guy. Well, and look, I mean, people, I'm 45, people my age and younger, they they mostly recognize you from uh, more comedic roles. But even over the last couple of decades, you will still flip flop back and forth between the funny and uh, the more serious, too. Is it important for you as a, a comedic actor to uh, to revisit uh, those more dramatic roots from time to time? I go with the best material it is. It could be a play, it could be a TV show, could be a movie, could be a you know, commercial that's really well done and those things even exist. So I just go for the the best material I can get my mitts on. So for years, it's been Christopher Guest. Then it became Better Call Saul. And now Young Sheldon is a fine show. And to work with these guys in the midst of all that, John and Greg did a terrific job, not just shooting the movie that they had written so well, but the way they eat, they pieced it together, the way they edited it was exemplary. They really got it down to a fraction of a second with those laughs that just need like, just a second and three quarters of Larry after you give him the news. Two seconds would kill it. Or less than a second would kill it. They know just the right timing with their editing. They're very, very skilled editors. Hmm, I didn't think about that. I'm going to have to rewatch the movie from that perspective. But obviously, a movie called Don't Tell Larry, or maybe not obviously, but in a lot of circumstances, this movie, this dark comedy doesn't work. 
if the Larry character is not only uh, not really good, but but probably the funniest person on set too. Just how impressed were you with Kyle and his performance as Larry? Kyle and Patty are wonderful improv actors. You know, they came to this part honestly through their brilliant improv work and aligned themselves with with John and with Greg. And uh, I I heard they were good, but I didn't know the, the level of it until I worked with them. They're really highly skilled, as good as anybody I've ever worked with. So I just feel so grateful to be 74 years of age and still be working with young people like that that are that talented. You know, I think it's a form of community service. You know, they get some community service points working with me, I think. <laughs> uh, do you know what their improv group is? I think they've worked with the Groundlings, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Or Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh, they've worked with a lot of different groups. I can't remember offhand which ones it is. I think it's one or more of the ones I just mentioned. But they're very good. They're every bit as good as that fine uh, troop of people that you see in those groups I mentioned. They're just great. Well, I don't want to get too deep into the past with you, Ed, because I hope you and I can have a, a conversation in the near future about your new memoir. Uh, but you obviously have a great sense of humor. Where does that come from? Because uh, you've got a, a certain deadpan wit about you that uh, really resonates with somebody like me, who is also uh, has a knack for the monotone, if you will. Well, my dad was a great dramatic actor. He won an Oscar for Sweet Bird of Youth that was yeah. not remotely a comedy, but also very funny. And very few people knew that side of him. But he played in a few comedies, you know, when I was younger, Dick Van Dyke show and this show and that. So I got to meet as a young man, Dick Van Dyke and Steve Allen, these people that I worship. I got to meet one of the keystone cops from the silent era of motion pictures. So I've had this career that's insane that it bridged from the silent films, given the people that I knew, you know, all the way to now where you got people like, Sean Baker doing a film and a wonderful film on his iPhone. You know, it, it, that's where we're at today. And so it's kind of amazing how much smaller the equipment has gotten, how much bigger other things have gotten. It's just, it's wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a good time. It's a platinum age of television. I grew up in the golden age of television with Patty Chayefsky, my dad, and Rod Serling and those people. But now with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and those people and Handmaid's Tale, this is the platinum age of television. So enjoy it. And then films like this can exist in another format that one day will be on television, but it's all very exciting. Who's your favorite comedic actor of all time? My favorite comedic actor of all time is Peter Falk. Hmm. Columbo. All right. And the last question now, uh, once again, for anybody who maybe uh, isn't familiar with Don't Tell Larry, but maybe at Austin Film Festival this weekend, maybe for the premiere tomorrow to check it out or at some point over the next week and a half, or maybe they have an opportunity to see it either in theaters or on demand after the film festival. Uh, What is the best reason for people to go and see this movie? It's funny. It's dark. It's going to shock you. It's going to surprise you in many different ways. It's really good. It's not the same old, same old. I'm, I'm tired of the same old, same old. Who isn't? This is not that. You're going to love it. Ed, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, People can see the book in the background there. Make sure to check out Ed's memoir and stay tuned. You will hopefully be hearing more from Ed here on the ESPN Austin show and then also Books on Pod in the not-too-distant future going more in-depth on that one. Thank you so much for the time today, Ed. Trey, thank you, pal. All right, just a couple minutes left here. Don't really have time to get into where we at today. 
And we will not be on tomorrow. Reminder that Texas Rangers baseball will be on these airwaves tomorrow as a part of ESPN Radio's World Series coverage. That's right, game one of the World Series between the Rangers and Arizona Diamondbacks. It's at Globe Life Field up in Arlington. Games one and two, Friday and Saturday night. Games three, four, and five, if necessary, will be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That is a 6 p.m. pregame with a first pitch of just after 7 o'clock right here on 1027 ESPN. And if there needs to be a game six and seven, then those will be next Friday and Saturday back in Arlington, and of course, you will be able to hear those games on 1027 ESPN. And I guess it's time for me to give a prediction on both the World Series and also Texas football. Let's start with Texas football first. Longhorns take on BYU. Malik Murphy, the starting quarterback. I do expect to see a little bit of Arch Manning in this game, even if the game is not necessarily in hand just yet. And I think the Longhorns do come together to take care of business. You see a replenish defense with a bounce back effort versus some of the embarrassment against Houston and Texas does end up winning this one by three to four touchdowns as far as the World Series goes as a Rangers fan who admittedly wasn't watching this team much at the beginning of the year that's not to say I don't love the Rangers but I'm sorry as a 45 year old guy I only have so much time in the day and early season baseball ain't gonna cut it for me but uh, I have quickly fallen in love with this team yeah call me a bandwagoner if you want to having said that I've also seen the highs and lows of the second half of this season building up that 10 plus game lead in the AL West before letting it all collapse losing the division altogether on the last day but bouncing back nicely this October not having lost a road game in these playoffs and all the Astros took it to you at Globe Life Field been a good team at home for the most part this year so my prediction Texas Rangers tempting to call a sweep I'll go Texas Rangers in five though that's right which pretty much secures that this team is going to break our hearts one more time. All right, I'll talk to you next week. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the week, a good weekend, and hook them. Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.